Let's pray. Lord, first this morning, I want to pray for a sister church that's sort of outside of our community, but who we um, kind of bump elbows with. Um, I want to pray for Lake Point Church in Rockwall. I want to pray for Steve Stroop and his family. Lord, first, more than anything, at least as a starting point for this church, I want to pray for Steve and his worship. Lord, I pray that you'll guard Steve from the same thing that I ask that you guard me from, from going through the motions and treating this like it's a job and being a pro. Lord, I pray that Steve will be scandalized by the reality that he, like me, is provided for while we study and eat your book. Lord, I pray that Steve is uh, blown away by what he sees and what he reads and what he discovers in this deep, bottomless book called the Bible. I pray that it will be truly living in his life. It will cut to his marrow as it cuts mine. And I pray that that will spill over onto his wife and kids. I pray that he will be transformed as a husband and a father. I pray that he'll be transformed as a friend, as a brother. And I pray that all that will just spill over and flow over onto a people. Lord, we pray for Lake Point, same thing I pray for this church, Lord, that you will guard us from ever getting our church on, from putting the check in the block, from attending to something that we should rather be. Lord, we beg for that in Lake Point. We beg for that in us. Lord, I pray, too, that in whatever way that we may serve alongside families or friends or neighbors, workmates from Lake Point, that we cheer for them and pray for them and encourage them and that we see ourselves not in competition but on the same team enjoying you out loud. Lord, in these next few minutes, I pray for this people. I pray for an attentiveness that's greater than anything that any of us could muster. Pray that you'll move me out of the way. Pray that we'll be true and loving at the same time. Thank you for your son and his finished work. In his name we pray. Amen. We are six years into the life of this church. Some of y'all may not know that. This building's been here a long time, but this church hasn't. We're six years old, really, I would say six years old in August. That's when uh, Christy and I were called, and I feel like leadership is part of what defines church. So without leadership, uh, even though there are a few people gathered, may not have been a church yet. But we would say that we're about six years into this. And it's taken us this long, I believe, to learn how to distance ourselves from expectations when it comes to youth ministry. We may not be free of it yet. But I think we're getting closer, and we may even be close. The problem with youth ministry is that there are some significant expectations that go along with it. Some of those expectations include that we address the issues that surround our young people, like bad language, 
drugs, sex, alcohol, homosexuality, uh, they get next to that in school, possibly even abortion issues that our young people are dealing with, cheating, maybe that we, we deal with those sort of issues, laziness, that we help them stay out of the ditches of those problems, that we stay out of the ditches of drugs, sex, alcohol, premarital sex, I already said that, say it twice because we need to, by keeping them occupied, by keeping them occupied in spiritual things, like kind of a, a community, which is good, the community of youth that are enjoying Christ together maybe with some activities. Another expectation is that we provide a model for young men in a youth minister and a model for young women in the youth minister's wife. And that we will be effective in these endeavors to the degree in which we are creative, innovative, fun, and cool. That's kind of hard to admit, but I think we can all appreciate and recognize the caricature. It's really not even a caricature. The profile of the typical youth minister. Got a beard, maybe looked a little bit like me, but about 20 years younger. <laughs> Torn up jeans, you know, must up hair, graphic tee, and funny, and innovative, and creative, and athletic. And secretly, the parents think, or maybe not even secretly, they think, my kids are going to love this guy. It's going to be great. They're going to stick in the youth ministry. These expectations may seem okay. They may seem harmless, and they may even seem ideal. But the problem is, is when these expectations shape the ministry, then the ministry to our young people, and not just youth, but our young singles, young married couples, the ministries to our young people can become activity programs with light topical teaching about the ditches and in effect creates what I would say is a consumer rather than a worshiper. If our efforts that are driven by these expectations are successful, this is the profile, and I use successful with quotation marks around it for those that might be listening to an audio and think that I'm really calling this successful. What we can end up calling successful is a young person that won't get pregnant before they're married. They won't get an MIP or a DUI. They won't cuss. They won't have any piercings or tattoos. They will listen to music that's safe for the whole family. They will listen to his or her parents. They will go to a good college, get good grades, meet a good girl or boy, get married, and have little babies that look like them. That can be what we term as success of a youth ministry. And if they end up attending church regularly, then that's the icing on the cake. But in reality, what the consumer youth group can produce is, I would argue, two possibilities. There may be three, because I know that God can work magic with really messed up things, and that worshipers can actually come out of something like this. But in large part, what I'm afraid it produces, I fear, is two possibilities. The first possibility is that it can produce a young person that says, you know what, this is stupid. I don't care if he is wearing a graphic tee like me. I don't care if he is kind of funny. I really think he's kind of stupid. 
And when I get old enough, I'm gone. Church is stupid. I'm done with it. And in fact, I'm done with the faith the minute I leave home. I will go thine own way, and I will trade my Savior or their Savior for whatever functional Savior comes along. Share an excerpt with you from a book called uh, Family Driven Faith by Vody Balkum. Vody is sharing a little story about talking with this young woman. He preached at Palm Beach Atlantic University in a chapel service. He preached on biblical manhood. He had a number of young men come up to him afterwards. And he actually had some young women come up to him and talk also. And one specific young woman he begins to tell this story about. He says, she was obviously wrestling with what she had heard. And she sat down next to me during lunch, took a deep breath, and began to share her heartbreaking story. She was a 21-year-old junior who was wrestling with a serious relationship. She, She said that she loved a young man very much, but he was none of the things that the Bible clearly taught a prospective husband must be, what she'd just heard Vody preach on. She began to fight back tears as she asked, what am I going to do? As I asked questions and I discovered that she, began, that she had been seeing the young man for over two years. The two of them were very serious. And although she did not say so, I would be very surprised if they did not have a sexual relationship. She'd obviously been agonizing over the future of this relationship long before my sermon, but what she heard that morning pushed her over the edge. However, the relationship was so serious and it lasted so long that she wondered if she needed a support group to help her get over it. I asked her if she knew any mature Christian women who could help her through the, this difficult time, and she did not. I asked her if she was part of a Bible study or a small group, and she was not. I asked her if she was attending a church, and she was not. I spent half an hour with this young woman, and at the end of that half hour, I tried to think about her situation from the perspective of a father whose daughter is just a few years younger than this young lady. Immediately, my heart began to break. This young woman to whom I was speaking had grown up in the church. She came from a good family. In fact, her family was so committed to her and to her future that they sent her off to an expensive private Christian university. However, just a few years after leaving home, she was not attending church, had invested two years in a relationship with a young man who had had also abandoned the church, and had developed a worldview that was anything but biblical. She traded her Savior or the Savior of her family for a functional Savior called this dude. Unfortunately, he says, this is not an isolated incident. According to researchers, between 70 and 88% of Christian teens are leaving the church by their second year in college. 70 to 88%. He said, that's right, modern American Christianity has a failure rate somewhere around 80, almost 9 out of 10, almost 8, almost 9 out of 10 when it comes to raising children who continue in the faith. Imagine the alarm if nearly 90% of our children couldn't read when they left high school. There wouldn't be enough room at school board meetings to hold all of the irate parents, right? While these numbers are astonishing, they should not be surprising. Over the past several years, a number of researchers have discovered that the overwhelming majority of our teenagers who still attend church and identify themselves as Christians have belief systems that mitigate their claims. Listen to this. Researcher George Barna, for example, discovered that 85% of born-again teens do not believe in the existence of absolute truth. Over 60% agreed with the statement, nothing can be known for sure except the things you experience in your own life. 
More than half of those surveyed believe that Jesus sinned during his earthly life. Christian Smith and his research team at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, conducted the largest study of teen religion to date. Their research was published in a book called Soul Searching. Listen to this. National study of youth and religion discovered that while U.S. teens are very religious, their religion is largely ambiguous. This ambiguity is due in large part to the lack of time and attention devoted to spiritual matters compared to other activities. Smith notes, listen. Our research suggests that religious congregations are losing out to school and the media and for the first time the attent- and the attention of youth. When it comes to the formation of the lives of youth viewed sociologically, faith communities typically get a very small seat at the end of the table for a very limited period of time. The youth formation table is dominated structurally by more powerful and vocal actors. Since most teens know details about television characters and pop stars, but many are quite vague about Moses and Jesus. Most youth are well-versed about the dangers of drunk driving, AIDS, and drugs, the ditches. But many haven't a clue about their own traditions, core ideas. Many parents are clearly prioritizing homework and sports over church or youth group attendance. That happens even right here, y'all. As a result, Smith and his research team found that, I'm almost done, I want you to listen. The majority of American teenagers appear to espouse rather inclusive, pluralistic, and individualistic views about religious truth, identity boundaries, and the need for religious congregation. In other words, the, the culture of secular humanism appears to have co-opted America's Christian teens. Thus, we should not be surprised that young people are fleeing the church in droves. Why would anybody remain faithful to an organization which they largely disagree That's the dude I'm saying, I'm out of here. This isn't funny. It's stupid. Dudes on TV are a lot funnier. How could anyone remain faithful to a belief system that's relegated to the outskirts of their lives? The problem is not that these children are leaving Christianity. The problem is that most of them, by their own admission, are not Christian. Swallow heart. Hence, their leaving makes complete sense. The Apostle John put it best when he wrote, They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out so that it would be shown that they are not all of us. I realize that I just opened a can of worms. A few more sentences. But this can needs to be opened. What if Christian parents are going through life convinced that their children are regenerate when in fact they are not? What if our sons and daughters are merely going through the motions as they walk through life as goats among sheep or tares among the wheat? Consumer youth group, I would argue, can produce that dude or that young lady that says, give me a functional savior in place of that one who I don't even know. I know what the church says about drugs and alcohol and the ditches, but they never taught me to worship. I'm out of here. The second possibility, now that's scary. The second possibility, I would argue, is just as scary. The second possibility is the young person with a good job, a tidy life, clean nose, but with the hard, dark heart of the Pharisee. If you think that's not possible, think of what Jesus said to the Pharisees. He said, you're a bunch of whitewashed tombs, but guess what? You're dead inside. Whitewash, that's painting. That's, oh man, that's a beautiful, shiny tomb. It looks so good. 
It's so tidy. But inside, they're dead. This thing that I did with the quotation marks, the success product of the youth ministry that we're talking about right here, could possibly just be a real shiny Pharisee. One that looks good, but on the inside is dead because they never learned to worship. It's the breast-beating, repentant, broken tax collector that Christ commended, not the shiny Pharisee. And my question to this people, the question that we've been wrestling with for six years as elders, the question that we've been wrestling with with parents and trying to talk through and search through in the Scriptures, is will the expectations that I mentioned above those expectations about teaching about the ditches, keeping them out of the ditches by keeping them active. Well, those sort of expectations create the broken worshiper that's amazed by grace. Well, they create the broken worshiper that's convicted over sinfulness. Well, they facilitate a worshiping and a wonder at the goodness and greatness of the living God. Can we keep them totally active and busy and ah, shooting milk out of our nose and never deal with worship. Now, I want to say before I continue that I never for a moment think that this dude that I was talking about, this young youth ministry that's really funny, that's wearing the graphic tee, that has a beard and holes in his jeans, I will not say he doesn't love Jesus. And I will not say that his church doesn't love Jesus. And I will not say that his parents or the parents who send their children to that youth ministry don't love Jesus. That's not what we're saying. What we're wondering and digging and questioning is, is that God's best? Or is that a paradigm that we've all grown up under? This expectation of what it's supposed to be like. I'm going to tell you where we've landed at Crosspoint. And we are staying the course until the Lord shows us otherwise. Where we have landed is that youth ministry is the same place we've landed with children's ministry, the same place that we've landed with church in general, that God is looking for worshipers, not consumers. He's looking for worshipers who worship in spirit and in truth. So we want to be instruments who are equipping people to do that. Equipping people for worship and wonder, disciples that worship, making young men and women that wonder and marvel at the greatness of God. Somehow trying to be part of the process of producing families that talk about matters of the heart more than they talk about matters of the hand or the mouth. That's what we want to be part of. And I'm going to tell you right now, it doesn't make for a real flashy youth ministry. People come in and like, tell me about your youth ministry. And they're like, well, um, we kind of have one. Well, who's your youth minister? Well, um... Well, I'm not sure. Elders? Parents? <laughs> it doesn't make for a real flashy youth ministry. It doesn't make for a real flashy church. It's a simple burden, but it's difficult to actually walk in. And it looks like what we're about to do today as we climb into the book of Ecclesiastes. We're not going to John today. So turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 11. And I want you to know, too, as we climb into this passage... <laughs> that this message sounds like the character of our burden for youth ministry. It's kind of the same tenor and tone 
of what we want our youth ministry to look like. We want our ministry toward young people to sound like. Really, you could say, some of you who are visiting, who've been around, who are more seasoned, it's a nice way of saying older, who are looking around saying, this whole church is young people. So this message is for all of us. As you're turning there, I want to share with you, the last few weeks I've been meeting with the youth, at least some of them, the ones that would come on Wednesday nights to our Bible study. The elders are dedicating themselves to meeting and teaching and walking directly with our young people. The last few weeks we've been studying teens in the Bible. Really, we've been looking for teens and we hadn't found any. There's no teenagers in the Bible. In fact, the word teenager was not even around before 1941. It was in a Reader's Digest article where the word teenager came from. It's not in our Bible. In our Bible, they call them young men and young women. Imagine that. So we've been studying young men and young women. <clears throat> we studied Rebecca, watering the camels, a woman of character. We studied Saul before he got large in his own eyes. We studied David, a lion killer, giant slayer. We studied Esther, a mediator for an entire nation of people, Israelites. All these young people, young men and young women, likely the age of your youth. We studied Ruth. We studied Boaz's foreman. We studied Jonathan's armor bearer. They said, all right, Jonathan, let's go. And the two of them grabbing swords and slaying a bunch of Philistines. I'm with you. We studied Samuel ministering to Eli. We studied Mary, the mother of our Lord. And we found that biblically there is no picture of a vacation from responsibility called teenagerdom. There's no picture of it. In fact, in our Bibles, there's a really high view and high expectation. We found young men and young women with purpose and with passion. And we realized that when the Bible ended, the redemptive story wasn't over. That while the canon may be finished, there are no more words written in our Bibles. This story's still going on, and we're smack dab in the middle of it as a people. And that our young people, just like these young people, should have high expectations. And should want greatness for the glory of God. We realize the redemptive story wasn't over. And that our young people and their parents can and should be burdened for more than just good grades and no ditches. but rather for greatness and usefulness for the glory of God. So I appeal to our young people with this passage we're climbing into today. It's likely written by a man named Solomon. He calls himself the preacher early on in the book. Solomon was a man that lived it up. Solomon was a man that tried everything. A man that had excess, access and excess, access to everything and excess in everything. A man who, in this book specifically, in Ecclesiastes, records his thoughts and observations at the end of his life. He's able to look back and share some things with us. As you get acquainted with Solomon of Ecclesiastes, you're going to get acquainted with an old man who feels he squandered his life. You're going to get acquainted with an old man who had the best and most life offered, but found it actually pretty doggone meaningless. Found it like a mirage. It looks good. Ah, yeah. Let's go. And you get there and you go, there's nothing here. But then there's the next one. 
a man who lived from mirage to mirage. You're going to find a man who's skeptical, a man who's cynical, a man who's confused, but a man who all at the same time is honest and wise, but it's sort of a dark wisdom, a wisdom in how not to go. Some of you who can say, I know how not to go, you can identify with this dude. He could be your buddy. And we can learn some great things from this old man, old man, old wise man named Solomon. So we're going to climb into Ecclesiastes chapter 11, verse 7. Verse 7 and 8 are kind of going to warm us up. And then we're going to go from verse 9 of chapter 11 through chapter 12, verse 8. And in those passages, I want to show you three things. They all start with R. It's a preacher's dream, you know, because they are really good sermons supposed to all start with the same letter or be an acronym when you're really finished and refined. But really, they all start with R, and they're right here in our text. And these three things I want to tell you, too, before we even engage them, they're called imperatives. You may have heard someone say, man, it's imperative that you get this, like your boss at work. It's imperative that you get this. And you're like, oh, I don't know what that means, but it sounds serious. It is serious. It's like a command. It's like an urgent command. You've got to do this. So there are three of these in this passage from verse 9 on. But verses 7 and 8 get us kind of warmed up. Light is sweet, and it is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. So if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all. But let him remember that the days of darkness will be many. All that comes is vanity. He's referring here to the sunny days of youth. You're going to see as the context unfolds that he's speaking about young age and then old age. And he's contrasting the two. Looking back as an old man, looking at his youth. He's referring to the sunny days of youth where even when it rains, you know this sort of youth. You probably have kids or you've seen kids even when it's raining it's like that's no big deal we can do all kind of fun stuff every day's a sunny day when you're young rain doesn't dampen anything and he says let the one who lives many years rejoice in those years but remember the days of darkness will be many and then there's a theme of the book that you hear throughout the book it says all is vanity all is meaningless And these verses, I'm going to tell you, they get us sort of warmed up in what we're about to see. You get a taste of Solomon, the one who used to enjoy the sun, but who's now feeling the dark days, and he characterizes every bit of it as vanity and futility. In verse 9, here's the first imperative. It starts with an R. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart. And in the sight of your eyes. But know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. Here's the first charge to the young person, the young man, the young woman, the teen, the young single, the young married couple, is to rejoice in your youth. It says, let your heart cheer you. Walk in the ways of your heart. Walk in the sight of your eyes. Now, I really want to show you how dangerous this command is. I want you to imagine parents who have young teens. Imagine your young person leaving the house and you're going to encourage them, hey, I'll see you later on tonight. Follow your heart and your eyes when you're out. (laughs) Have a great time when you're out tonight. Let your heart cheer you. You probably wouldn't say those things. You would probably say, uh, 
I hope you have a good time and you're kind of sheepish and careful and meanwhile you're hoping that they really don't. And they come home early grumpy and say, I'm never going out again. You would never say, follow your heart and your eyes. Let your heart cheer you. This is a very dangerous command, but yet it's here. But let me show you why it's dangerous. It's dangerous because we know this. Jeremiah 17, 9. It's a familiar passage. The heart is deceitful above all things and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? That's why you wouldn't tell your young person, follow your heart, because you know your own heart. You're like, please don't do what I did or what I wanted to do or what I saw done. We know how dangerous the heart is. John in 1 John says this about the heart and the eyes. Listen. He says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that's in the world, listen, the desires of the flesh, here heart, and the desires of the eyes and the pride and possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. John says the person that's walking by what they see and what they feel in their heart is walking in the ways of the world. That's why this command is dangerous. But yet he charges it anyway. He charges the young person to walk by his heart and to walk by sight, and then he qualifies. And here's how you understand how those verses work together. He says, but know, but know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. Know that for all the cheer and all the ways of the heart and the sight of the eyes and all the rejoicing, know that God will bring you into judgment. That's how you understand it. That's how they work together. Have fun, but no. He says it in the last verse of this book. You can see it on that page. For God will bring every deed into judgment and every secret thing, whether good or evil. The preacher knows what's in store. And he says, man, go have a great time. Follow your heart and follow your eyes. But know that you will be brought into judgment for every single thing that you do. Paul said it to the church in Corinth. He said, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. All. So that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. He commands them to rejoice in your youth, but know that judgment comes. It sort of sounds like a threat, but it's not. The Christian church so needs this teaching. We so need to understand what he's saying here. This isn't the message of a cosmic killjoy. Go have a good time, but I'm going to hammer and I'm going to mash you for whatever you do. That's not our God. This is the promise. The promise of judgment for the one who doesn't rejoice in his youth rightly. That's what it is. It's a promise of judgment for the one who doesn't rejoice in his youth Rightly, And what he's talking about here, he's talking about tempered enjoyment with a view to the finish line. Go have a great time, but have a view to the finish line. Have a view for being answerable for everything that you do, everything that you say. Tempered enjoyment, knowing that you'll answer for every deed. The church needs this teaching. Because there's a mindset among Christians... That being a Christian means crucifying all fun and enjoyment. 
man, I would be a Christian, but it's just so boring. <laughs> and they're just not funny, and they don't have fun. And we can try and teach our young people not to have fun either. And yet he's commanding rejoice. We ought to be having the most fun. I'm 41, and uh, I've kind of had this renewed midlife crisis or something. I don't know what it is. But like this burden to do some things that I've never been willing to do, like mountain biking and started running again, trying to do some things while I still am able. So I enjoyed this encouragement to rejoice. The encouragement for the young person is to rejoice, to run while you can, to ride a mountain bike and fall off and get bruised because there'll come a time where instead of getting bruised, you'll break a hip. Go get bruised. Man, I, I want to climb mountains. I want to fish in streams. I want to eat a great burger. I want to have good times with my friends making inappropriate noises. <laughs> I want to do that, making lots of them. Man, that's Christ, very Christian. If we're going to obey this command to rejoice, we can do that. I want to sing real loud to real loud music. But in all these things, I want to engage the preacher where he says in chapter, chapter 2, he says, for who, who can eat or find enjoyment without him? I want to know it with him. And who can eat? Hey, you think you're happy without him? You don't even know happy. You think you found joy with a functional Savior? You found the joy that this woman describes later on, or this woman that we read about earlier. It's a fading joy. It's a brokenhearted joy. It's no joy at all. Who can eat or find enjoyment without him? So the command to rejoice responsibly is a good command, and we need it. I found a quote by an early guy that says, Joy was created to dance with goodness, not alone. Joy was created to dance with goodness. It doesn't dance alone. So rejoice, but know that you will be answerable. Verse 10, here's the next charge for young people. Remove vexation from your heart and put away pain from your body for youth and the dawn of life for vanity. Remove is an imperative, a command to the young person. The first one is to rejoice. This one in your youth. This one is to remove vexation and pain. Scott is on this vexation kick. He's not here this morning. I wish he was because I'd really like to make fun of him in front of y'all. But when he's teaching on Wednesday nights, those of y'all that were here the last few times he's teaching on Wednesday nights, he was using vexation all the time. It's like his, his, his catchphrase. And I didn't know what it meant, but I was acting like I did. But now that I'm actually having to engage it, I'm going, okay, what is vexation? Vexation is anger, irritation, and annoyance. Remove all that from your heart. Anger, irritation, and annoyance. Remove, actually, this, this word for pain is the word evil in Hebrew. And remove evil from your body. So here's what this passage is saying, this command for the young person. It's to remove things that disturb or vex us because they limit real living. And I would say some of those things, I'm going to kind of pick a little bit on video games and TV. 
The TV and video games can leave you pale, ashen, unsocial, and unfit. Remove those things that disturb or vex us because they limit real living. Remove indulgences that bring guilt to the mind and damage to the body. There's a vexation that I will share with you that's very personal for me. I've spent most of my life wrestling with my weight. I was an overweight kid. And um, it's one of those things that's a constant battle for me. And there's a vexation to eating too much. And there's a pain that goes along with that. The pain of the mirror. The pain of the closet. Things that used to fit that don't. The pain of the beach. Somebody says, hey, let's go to the beach. I'm like, no. I don't think so. (laughs) Not fun. Showing my fatness. There's a pain of physical activity. The pain of the hike. No, thanks. I can hardly breathe. I'm carrying 30 or 40 pounds of extra weight. I know that pain, man. And this is an obstacle to the joy that he just commanded. It's an obstacle. And he says, remove those obstacles so that you can enjoy. There's a vexation and pain of, here's a list, meaninglessness. There's a vexation and pain of uselessness, of fruitlessness. Here, teenage vacation from responsibility. Some of the anger and vexation that we may see in our young people may be because they're living lives that are meaningless. And because you as parents are leaving them to their own device. There's a pain and vexation of time squandered. Of days and hours gaming, pale, ashen, and alone. I'm not anti-video game, but you must know that we Fit isn't a good replacement for real adventure. There's a vexation and pain of endless texting about absolutely nothing. Of hourly Facebooking updates that fish for affirmation. Give me meaning. Give my life meaning. Of nights carousing when you know you took his name where it shouldn't be. There's a vexation and pain that goes with that. There's a vexation and pain in knowing that you did things that bring shame in the name of Christ rather than fame and renown. There's vexation and pain that comes from medicating with food and drink and not the Holy Spirit and His Word and His people. There's a vexation and pain from not rejoicing in life with Him. Young people are those who still have breath We are to remove whatever obstacles we have in our lives to enjoy in. That's why we need each other. We've got to work together as families. Youth, you need your parents. Parents, you need friends. All of us need our church to be involved in each other's lives so that we can remove these obstacles. Because guess what? He says the next thing. Youth is vanity. Youth and the dawn of life are vanity He's speaking of their fleeting. Ephesians chapter 5 says, make the most of your time for the days are evil. He's not saying a day like Tuesday is an evil day. He's saying they're evil because they're fleeting. They're gone. And they're unforgiving. If you're useless, meaningless, idle, pale, ashen, 
disengaged, uninvolved, unchallenged. Tuesday's coming whether you engage it or not. The days are evil and they fleet. Your young life will pass quickly and you will find that you've traded a weak, unfulfilling, vexing, painful version of joy that I promise you is no joy at all for the real thing. So the command is to remove vexation from your heart and put away pain from your body. And the third thing, this is where it all comes together. In verse, chapter 12, verse 1, it's to remember also your creator in the days of your youth. Remember your creator in the days of your youth. He's got three befores that unfold after that, and we're going to look at that, what he's talking about specifically. But he says to remember your creator in the days of your youth before the evil days come and the years draw near of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. I had no pleasure in this weekend. I had no pleasure in Tuesday. I promise you those days will come, but you remember him now. First of all, you remember that you have a creator, young person. Remember that you're not the center of the universe. You're not the center of all things. I hate to break it to you. I thought I was. I wish I'd have listened to somebody telling me you're not. That you were created and you were answerable to the one that made you. There's someone outside of you and above you who was there before you were and will be there after you aren't. Who is all-knowing, all-powerful, ever-present, who sees all things and knows all things and who will not be mocked. Man, it's a good start to know that you were created, young person. Remember him like the psalmist, not like a recollection. Oh, yeah, I remember God. Remember him like the psalmist that said, let the tongue, my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you. If I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. This psalmist was writing from Babylon and was thinking about Jerusalem where the temple was, where fellowship was with the living God. He's like, man, let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth if I somehow forget you. I want to remember you. I want to be with you. That sort of remembrance is what we're talking about like this. When remembrance is like this, is youth too much to pour into it? How about adulthood? How about parenthood? How about wifedom? How about husbanddom? How about friendom? How about your life? Every bit of it. Remember him in the short, fleeting, vain days of your youth. Not later, but now. You can't afford to put off faith and worship and wonder and enjoyment of God. For the days, the evil days, will come when you're old and grumpy. I promise. How many of y'all know that couple, the grumpy retiree couple that's mad at the world? I'm not saying all retirees, so if you're retired, I'm not big on retirees. But I bet y'all know the couple I'm talking about. They're retired and they're mad, angry at the president, angry at the neighbors, angry with the homeowners association, angry at the daughter, angry at the son-in-law, angry with everyone in the entire world but the grandkids. You know what I'm talking about. Y'all know that couple. They're mad at the doctor. Because the doctor's just trying bubblegum and shoestrings, just trying to keep them stuck together. <laughs> They're mad at the accountant, along with the rest of the world right now. They're mad at the hairstylist. Hey, she can't work miracles. 
<laughs> they might even be mad at the pastor. And you're about to find out why the aged have no pleasant in, pleasure in their older years. He's about to expose it for us. The next verse says, Remember your creator before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened and the clouds return after the rain. These next verses are some of the sweetest poetry in our Bibles. Remember your creator before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened before the lights that he referred to in chapter 11, verse 7, for the young person that's enjoying the sun before those lights grow dim. Remember him before those lights grow dim. Remember him before old age comes and the clouds return. You know what clouds mean. They mean rain. And you can engage what this is talking about. Imagine living in New Orleans. Imagine if we were a church in New Orleans and we heard there was a new hurricane off the coast and we're like, golly. Man, I just got my house restored. Man, there's another one coming. The clouds are coming back out. You get through that first trial and then the clouds come out again and you know there's more trial in store. And the preacher is encouraging the young person to remember him before life darkens, before you start living from trial to trial, from cloud to cloud. Because there will become a time where that's what your life is summed up at. I remember when I was a young man in high school, my two biggest trials was whether to wear an Izod or not. Back then, the eyes were little bitty alligators. I saw some people wearing them like this big now. <laughs> little bitty. Whether I was going to give in to that or whether I was going to part my hair in the middle and feather it. <laughs> which I didn't do, I'll have you know. Those are my biggest trials. Those it's really not trials. We're talking about some serious trials, young people, and I promise you these trials are coming. Trials when your friends die. I was thinking this morning just about friends that are my high school age, high school and college friends. Six of them are dead now, and I'm 41. I was thinking about family. Family members die. I could think of six or seven family members, and I'm talking not just like long-distant family members. I'm talking cousins, uncles, aunts, grandparents. Man, the clouds are coming, young people. I'm telling you. He's saying, remember him now. Before you get that email or that phone call about someone that you recently laughed with, and you have to sit down and you go, they're dead? They're gone? I promise you the clouds are coming. The clouds are going to come when you have kids that can't see. Or you have kids that need insulin. Or you have kids who aren't with their peers developmentally. Or you have kids that are violently disobedient. Or you have friends that walk out on marriages, maybe yours. Or you have friends that walk out on friendships. Or you, you have people in your life that you've worn sackcloth and ashes with when they were hurting or grieving who turn on you and become your chief critic. I promise you it's coming. The clouds are coming. You'll have bills that grow bigger than your income, an income that shrinks all, shrinks all together. You'll lose babies. Or you'll find you can't have babies. Or you'll have too many babies. 
I promise you the clouds are coming. You're going to watch your waistline grow and your chins multiply. You're going to be prone to eating more while your body needs less. Your knees are going to hurt, and you'll aggravate your hips and ankles trying to compensate for your knees. It's coming. You'll know what the preacher means about the clouds that return, I promise you. And the charge here, the command is to remember him before that happens. The reality is that most of us never even get to know God until we're right in the mix of this stuff. We've lost somebody. Is there a God? How about getting to know him before this stuff happens? How about being acquainted with his greatness before it's all you have to cling to? That's the command here. Remember him now. And then in verse 3, oh, it's beautiful. Remember him in the day when the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men are bent and the grinders cease because they're few and those who look through the windows are dimmed and the doors on the street are shut when the sound of the grinding is low and one rises up at the sound of a bird and all the daughters of song are brought low. They are afraid also of what is high and terrors are in the way. The almond tree blossoms, the grasshopper drags itself along and desire fails because man's going to his eternal home and the mourners go about the streets. That's poetry for your body getting old. Specifically, I'll tell you, the keepers of the house are the ribs. The strong men that he's speaking of here, the strong men that are bent, are the legs and the arms. The grinders that cease because they're few, those are the teeth before they had good dentistry. When you got no grinders, guess what? You, I don't know what you do with your food. Drink it. When the window lookers are dimmed, how many of you have friends or family that had macular degeneration and you watch someone that's seen their whole life in their final years where they're feeble, they can't see anything? Or cataracts, or glasses when you're 40. Remember him before this stuff happens. When the doors are shut, that's the hearing failing. When the sound of grinding is low, but at the same time, you're restless. The stirring of a Tweety Bird wakes you up. I see this in my old dog, Merle. He's 14. He's deaf as a doornail. And I see this in old Merle, a restlessness and a deafness that work together in my old dog. He's marooned within his own mind. He's terminally lonely, and he moans and whimpers at all hours for no reason, stirred by everything and stirred by nothing. The preacher is encouraging the young man and the young woman to remember him before you reach this place. The Daughters of Song is addressing the happy-go-lucky, fearless dance and song of youth. It's now the fear of heights. I don't want to fall and break my hip. Or the terrors in the way is dealing with the hustle and bustle of traffic. When the best you can do is shuffle along, crossing the street's a big deal. Remember him before these things happen. Remember him before the, the almond trees blossom. Those of us with graying hair. Remember him before the grasshopper drags itself along. The grasshopper is the picture of spring and bounce before you've lost your spring in your step. Remember him before desire fails. I need to explain. That word desire in Hebrew is the word capaberry. Capaberry was an aphrodisiac. That'd be like saying, remember him before Viagra and Cialis don't even work anymore. Remember him. 
Remember him before your ribs tremble, before your legs and arms are bent, before your teeth fall out, before your vision fades, before your hearing weakens, before you have restless nights and fearful days, before you have white hair and no desire. Remember him before you begin to deal with a failing, aging, deteriorating body. Remember him now, today. And then he talks about death. Remember him before the silver cord is snapped or the golden bowl is broken or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain or the wheel broken at the cistern and the dust returns to the earth as it was and the spirit returns to God who gave it. The silver cord is a cord that held the golden bowl and in the golden bowl there were candles. And when the silver cord breaks, the bowl falls, the candles go out. Your lights go out. This picture of the cistern where the pitcher is broken and the, the wheel is broken. The wheel is the pulley wheel at the cistern where you draw the pitcher up. When that wheel breaks, the pitcher breaks, and you've got no water, and you've got no life. Remember him before you return back to your elemental parts of dust and spirit, young people. Those who are breathing. The last verse, vanity of vanity, says the preacher, all is vanity charge to young people and really to any of us who are still breathing is that you have a gift of light and life that you may squander and the reality is hear this the reality is most do most people squander this maybe most didn't hear the charge from the preacher though maybe most didn't have this sweet privilege of hearing truth from the living God on the urgency of rejoicing in your life, of removing obstacles that get in the way of rejoicing in Him, and remembering Him, your Creator. Life is so short, and your youth is even shorter. And we, as a church, appeal to our young people, along with their preacher, to rejoice in your youth. Remove vexation and pain and remember who really matters while your obstacles to all of the above are so wonderfully few. Let me pray. Lord, there's a uh, severe urgency that comes from an old man that's near death who lived it all, who tried everything. sort of a pessimistic wisdom, a cynical, frustrated, brokenheartedness that comes from Solomon, the Lord, I pray we won't feel. I pray that we will hear this message from this wise old man that tried nearly everything, likely everything that we really want and characterized all of it as meaningless and vanity and futility. Lord, I pray as young people, I pray as families, I pray as a church that we will be characterized by rejoicing in real life. Tempered enjoyment. Lord, I pray that we will be about the work of removing obstacles. Really, I pray that the Holy Spirit will be about that work in our lives. He'll bring conviction and then we'll walk in that conviction. Then we'll seek help from one another. 
and that whatever obstacles we have in our lives that stand in the way of enjoying you rightly will be removed. And lastly, Lord, I pray for a tongue sticking to the roof of our mouth sort of remembrance. A captivation and enjoyment, a satisfaction, contemplation, meditation on who you are and what you've done while we still have breath. We pray these things in the mighty name of Christ. Amen. Let's worship in song. Hebrews says, uh, chapter 3, verse 13 says, Exhort one another every day as long as it's called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. I want to tell you right now, it will be sin if you leave this sermon and do not engage each other with it. And let me tell you what's not engaging each other. Not engaging each other is to sit around and talk about how I said something. You haven't dealt with what was said. Let me, I know how hard that is. There's no way that I can say something to where every one of you say, that just soothes my sensibilities. Every word that comes out of his mouth is like dripping honey. <laughs> Chances are some of you be like, man, that was vinegar. I'm going to beg you to put that aside and hear what was said. The command from a guy who tried everything that's in our Bibles to rejoice. Rejoice in your youth. To remove obstacles to rejoicing and to remember him with everything you've got. So sit and talk as a family. Do we really enjoy him, guys? Sit down, kids. Get off your head. Sit on your behind. Let's talk. Quit writhing around. Let's focus just for a minute. Do we really enjoy him together? Well, no, not really. Do you enjoy your youth? Not really. Well, why not? Do we do anything fun? Do we go enjoy, enjoy him and enjoy each other together at all? Let's do that. Let's respond to what we've heard and walk in what we've heard and actually make maybe an adventure, a faith event. Connect the two, and then you really have fun. And then consider kids, wife, Husband, do we have some obstacles to enjoyment? What are some of those obstacles? Lord, show us the obstacles that by grace and mercy and faith you can, through the work of the Holy Spirit, remove if we're attentive to them and walking in them. And then third, do we really remember him or do we just recollect him or acknowledge him? Do we really remember him like our tongue sticks to the roof of our mouth if we forget him? What's keeping us from that? So I'm begging you today, maybe for the first time in your lives, to leave a sermon and to go talk about it over lunch as a family. Or go invite some friends and talk with friends about it. Man, what do you think about that? And again, I'm not asking for carte blanche that I can say whatever I want any way I say it. <laughs> I'm not asking for that. But I'm begging you, just maybe this Sunday, to maybe put how something was set aside and just engage what was said. And say, okay, if we're going to respond while it is today so that we're not hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, how do we do this? How do we walk in this? When you do that, let me, there, there's a, a term for what, what I'm describing here. It's called worship. And it's good. It's sweet. It changes your lives. Start with this week. That's an encouragement.